0: Let's find in our Bibles Romans chapter 5. Excited to get back into the particulars of these passages after a couple of weeks of review, and then before that, even two months of other topics that we've looked at outside of Romans. We're beginning this morning in verse 12. We'll be in this section two weeks, verses 12 through 21, for two weeks. I know you don't believe it, but we will. I'm, I'm actually held to it by a schedule this time. So, verses 12 through 21. Let's begin reading in verse 12. I'm going to read the passage, and I'll do what we usually do. We'll pray, we'll ask God's blessing upon the word preached, and then I'll dive into the message. Paul writes, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man... Let's pause and ask God's blessing on this passage. Father, we want to approach your word with a reverence and a carefulness and a joy and an expectancy of receiving spiritual food from you even through the, this means of what you called the foolishness of preaching. I pray that it would be wisdom and power this morning that comes from you. So I'm praying for the gift of teaching and exhortation. And I'm asking that all of our hearts and minds would be opened to your word and truth and that we would see things that we haven't seen before or maybe see things we have and needed to be reminded of. And so I pray that you would just impress your words upon our hearts this morning and that it would bear fruit for your glory in our lives. And we ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Romans chapter 5 is really... The whole chapter is about... Well, you could summarize it with one word. And that word is assurance. Matter of fact, I think I've mentioned this before, but I have the, a number of the commentaries from Martin Lloyd-Jones as he gave lectures and slash sermons through this passage and, of chapter 5. And the one on chapter 5 is a book of its own, and it's called Assurance. That's the name of the book. It's really uh, uh, Paul impressing on the church at Rome the results of this wonderful work of the gospel that God has done for his people now, his beloved ones, uh, uh, through Jesus Christ and how that work in the gospel is completed and it's finished and it's full and so that God's people can rest assured now that everything good that He has promised to them in Christ will come to pass. And we've said this before that God is concerned that His people understand and know and believe that they will fully and finally be saved by Him in the end. And this whole chapter is about that. As a matter of fact, you remember those first. What, first five verses speak about the results of justification, right? That you have peace with God, that you've obtained access by faith into this grace in which you stand, and you can actually rejoice, or the word would be boast in other places, in hope of the glory of God. So that you can know that one day you are going to be in glory, you can be so assured of this. That you can actually boast in it. I can preach it right now to you like this is true and this is going to happen with no exceptions at all for anyone in the room who's been justified by faith in Jesus Christ. So that if you're in Christ, then you can know you're going to be in glory. That's a powerful thing, especially then, even as he talks about the idea of suffering going to happen in our lives, that you know that the suffering isn't interfering with that in any way. And as a matter of fact, it's in that time that hope is actually increased by God because His love through the Spirit, His love for you, His unbreakable love and unchangeable love is poured out in your hearts by the Holy Spirit so that even through suffering, it's not like you become less assured of your hope. You can actually boast in it even more because of what God's doing in you through all of the suffering, right? Verses 6 through 11 he explains how Christ died for us while we were sinners. We were at enmity with God. That is, we were by nature enemies to Him. And it was at that point not when we were living rightly and obeying God's commands and striving after holiness, but it was when we were sinners that Christ died for. So Paul says, now how much more than can we be assured since now you see what Christ has done that he's, and he's been risen from the dead and you can see that it was while you were a sinner Christ died for you how much more can you be assured now that he's going to complete all this now that you've been reconciled to him what could possibly change that reconciled relationship no sin of course because it was while you were a sinner Christ died for your sins you see It's very good logic, very good reasoning on the Apostle Paul's part, building within us the assurance we need. In these final verses, verses 12 through 21, Paul is using a comparison between Adam and Jesus, calling, and I don't know if you caught this, but calling Adam a type of the one who was to come. Then he identifies the one who was to come, and of course that is Jesus. Adam being a type, and that he was a representative head of ours and in his sin and the way God has uh, reckoned that to the human race, sin and death spread to everyone. And therefore, death and condemnation have flowed through that one act of sin and rebellion. But how much greater, how much more wonderful is the last Adam who's come, Jesus? who for us lived and died and was raised again, and now all His wondrous, beautiful, justifying, life-giving work is given to us. How much more assurance should we have now in this time in which we live when we can see all that Christ has done for us as His people? Just as death reigned. Through that one act of sin, now life reigns. And grace reigns over the people of God. Grace reigns over the people of God. Isn't that what he ends this section with? Look at verse 21. Find the assurance in this. Look at verse 21. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to what kind of life? Eternal life through whom? Jesus Christ our Lord. See, it ends on that assuring note. You woke up this morning, friends, and do you know the disposition of God that reigns His work over you, that reigns over your life this morning is one of grace. Meaning it's not Contingent in Paul's thinking means it's not contingent on you or how you woke up feeling this morning, or what your performance was this week, but reigning over the people of God is His grace. This is a very assuring passage, you see. And this passage, chapter five verses 12 through 21, is a triumphant, victorious passage. That's why we have that reigning. Kinging, ruling kind of language. Both the saints are found here reigning in verse 19, and grace is reigning over the saints in verse 21. You have victory in and through Jesus Christ. And this will set us up perfect, actually, for chapter 6, which we should begin three weeks from this morning. I think it's three weeks. <laughs> chapter 6. And Paul is going to explain how we no longer then are slaves to sin and so we don't have to walk in defeat of sin. Why would you stay enslaved to something or someone you've been set free from is the idea. And if you've been not just crucify with Christ, but raise with Christ, then why would you stay in this tomb of sin and death? Why wouldn't you walk out of the tomb with Christ and walk in the newness of life? And there's victory in the Christian life. There's victory over sin. He will make that statement. You are, sin will not have dominion over you. You are not under the law. You are under grace. Chapter 6. If you were under the law, sin would have dominion. That's when it did. But now you're under grace. Grace rules and reigns over you. Therefore, you can walk in victory and newness of life. See, this whole passage is a very assuring passage, and it's a victorious passage. God's grace wins for his people through Jesus Christ. That account we read in Genesis chapter 3, you think the devil wins, Sin wins. Uh, Death wins, right? You're thinking, victory there. But what do we find in Christ? That God wins. God wins for his people. Jesus becomes the hero of the story in these verses of the whole Bible. The hero of the story for his people. God's grace then carries... The forgiven and transformed sinner all the way through the stages of this life into eternity. Through many dangers, toils, and snares I have already come. Tis grace that brought me safe thus far, and grace will lead me home. Now the Lord has promised good to me. His word my hope secures. He will my shield and portion be as long as life endures. Yea, when this flesh and heart shall fail, and mortal life shall cease, I shall possess within the veil a life of joy and peace, and the earth shall soon dissolve like snow, the sun forbear to shine, but God who called me here below will be forever mine, and when we've been there ten thousand years, bright shining as the sun, we've no less days to sing God's praise than when we'd first begun, you see. God's grace through Jesus Christ carries us through from beginning to end. It's a perfect gospel. And I mean it literally. It's perfect gospel. You can spend your whole life studying the gospel, holding it up, looking at it from different angles and you will find nothing imperfect about it. Nothing incomplete. Nothing that God left out. No strings attached. No yeah buts. Nothing. It is all perfectly complete and whole through Jesus Christ. It's a perfect gospel. No wonder Paul said, I am so eager to come to Rome and preach the gospel to you as well. You that have already heard the gospel and believe the gospel and been saved by the gospel. I'm eager to preach it to you because it's that good. And that's why Paul says, I'm unashamed of the gospel. And this now is all that we need to be saved has been revealed in the good news about Jesus Christ, you see. It's a perfect gospel. You know, I love Proverbs 10.22. I attach it now. I read back into Proverbs 10.22, the gospel. It says, the blessing of the Lord makes rich, and he adds no sorrow with it. You, in the gospel of Jesus Christ, have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. And mixed with this gospel is no sorrow, no bad. You say, well, I still have to walk through sorrowful times. I still have to suffer. Yes, but even then, the gospel is the shining light of the good news for you, see. Promising you the hope of glory and victory through the time of which you are suffering. Within the gospel and the blessings God gives, it is a perfect gospel and it makes us rich, does it not? Are you not rich in Christ this morning? I don't care what your bank account says, you are a quadra billionaire in Jesus Christ. That's how good the gospel is, isn't it? Friends, that's why you can, even as a song we sang this morning, I'm always amazed how not even planning these things, God brings about a song that's gonna bring one of my sub points out and says, talking about resting now in Christ. You can rest by faith in the person and work of Jesus Christ that your soul can be at rest. What Jesus promised, all you who are weary and heavy laden, come to me. Come to me. I will give you rest for your souls. Even in the midst of all you're going to experience in this life, all the trials, all the suffering, you come to me and your soul, well, they can be at rest now because of what I will do for you. We can rest the gospel presents to us our Sabbath rest. We don't have to work for anything that's done. We just have to look to the one who's done everything we should have did but didn't do. Everything we shouldn't have done, he didn't do and then died for. And we look to this one now and we rest in him. It's the gospel of assurance. So this passage is victorious, it's assuring Friends, these verses, verses 12 through 21, and kind of a little transition I'm going to bring us into right now, these are are verses that really need to help us develop a biblical worldview. Because in conjunction with what we read in Genesis chapter 3, just a little bit ago, they help answer some of the biggest questions people have about the world in which they live. They answer questions like this. Why is there so much suffering in the world? You ever heard somebody ask that? Well, guess what? We have the answer. Why is there so much evil in the world? I mean, how can people treat one another the way they do? How can you have such rampant evil in this world? Why do we all have to die? Why do churches have to hold memorial services for loved ones? This answers that. Or even more personal questions like, why is marriage so difficult? And if this is true love, it, shouldn't, it should be much easier than this, right? Why is marriage so difficult? Why is raising children so difficult? Why can't my child just do what my child's supposed to do and be good? Just be good, right? My kids always are. I'm talking about your kids. <laughs> yeah, right. I got the pastor's kids. Well, this passage, in coordination with Genesis chapter 3, gives us the answers to those questions. And I want to at least touch on some of that. But there's also much more about this, friends. It provides the solution to all of these problems. That God has provided the solution to all of those questions I've just asked and many more, and his name is Jesus, you see. We need to learn, friends, to become good at leading people with the big questions about the evil and death they see in the world to God's gracious answer, and that is Jesus. That's part of evangelism. They bring out those questions. You're able to show them from the scriptures what they, why they're seeing and experiencing what they are and how God has provided the ultimate solution in Jesus Christ and about the world that is to come in which none of these problems will be a problem. I don't know what kind of preaching will be in the new heaven and new earth or what God's going to do with that, but it won't be preaching about the effects of sin in a fallen world, because that will be a former thing that has passed now. But these are questions that people have now, and we should get relatively good at just simply, not complicatedly, but simply bringing them into the text and showing them how God's Word has the answers to this, and how God is providing just graciously Jesus Christ for us, and how God has a plan to fix this whole mess that we got ourselves into. And it's coming soon when Christ returns. And friends, we need to be confident about what the scriptures say. No wavering. We must not be ashamed of God's word or let the culture make us feel that way that somehow the Bible is some archaic book with no present relevance to our daily life or our cultural experience or the political landscape because that's what they want us to feel like. And they say your Bible is just fine in this room but just keep it there because it speaks nothing to what's going on in the real world. And friends, that's just not the case at all. We need to have a confidence in this. Now look at verse 12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sin. Now your Bible has a little dash in the translation there at the end of that. That's because Paul doesn't complete his thought right here. That's just letting you know that just by just throwing that out there is a little factoid. We saw one of those also in Genesis chapter 3 after the fall that God said something. He doesn't finish what he's about to say. Puts a little dash there or our translations do so that you understand that's what's happening. But notice what he says and how important this is for the world. You see the world There. We're talking about the world now in the broad sense of what we can mean about that. This has relevance now to the world and everything you see in it. And you're getting an explanation here, and you're getting an exposition of Genesis chapter 3. So if Paul were to read Genesis 3, and then he were going to preach a message on it, it would look something like this. This would probably be like the or outline of his message if he ever did that, but just him working through this. It's an exposition of what had happened in the garden that we just read about in Genesis chapter 3. Let me bring out a few points, as many as I can get to. Number one, clearly, from these verses then, as Paul read Genesis 3, and I would say Genesis 1 through 3, those very important creation passages, creation and fall, as he read those in the account of Adam and Eve and the disobedience of Adam in chapter 3, that as he's reading them, he's thinking and reading them as an actual, historical, factual event that really happened. And that Adam wasn't some mythical figure, but a real... Human being named Adam with Eve, and they sinned against God in the way that it was written. That's how he read it. Now, I know for our congregation, or I'm assuming most of you in here, that's a no-brainer. Almost like we don't even need to talk about that because you just read Genesis 3, and you're like, yeah, well, of course. But we do have to understand... That there are many people, including professing Christians, who read those early chapters and really struggle with seeing this as some kind of act of history. You know, this talking snake and two naked people in a garden just doesn't make sense to them. It kind of repels against their natural senses and their modern senses. But I don't think Paul had that struggle. And as he read it, it's very clear that we are to see that as something that really happened. One increasingly popular modern Christian theory, so this isn't a world's theory, this is of Christian people now, is that when God created everything, and as you read that first three, those first three chapters, God created everything, but he used the process of evolution to bring into existence everything and where we are right now so the process of evolution you don't even need to explain that many of us were raised in public schools and taught this from very beginning age of how the world came into existence through a big bang theory and then there was a single celled organism there floating around in the water and then that evolved and it kept going on billions of years and now we have species and we've got everything that you see now they say that that what Adam, what God did is that's how he did things and what they say is that what God did one day after billions of years is he found the most evolved of the life forms and he took them and he made them Adam and Eve. Matter of fact, one pretty popular organization is called BioLagos. Okay? BioLagos, I don't know if you've heard of this but it's a pretty popular organization. It's made up of trained scientists from very well educated scientists and I pulled up their doctrinal statement let me just put this out to you here's the here's a few things first few were like this we believe the Bible is inspired and authoritative word of God wonderful we believe that all people have sinned against God and are in need of salvation wow they're reading Romans this is great And then we believe in the historical incarnation of Jesus Christ as fully God and fully man. We believe in the historical death and resurrection of Jesus Christ by which we are saved and reconciled to God. So what is the problem? Well, these next ones are the problem. We believe that God created the universe, the earth, and all life over billions of years. And we believe that the diversity and interrelation of all life on earth are best explained by the god ordained process of evolution with common descent. With common descent, in other words, we all know what that means, right? We all come from one common place, one descent, one descendant and it was a single-celled organism that evolved into all the different species that we have here. Now there are a number of problems with that interpretation but one of them would eliminate Romans 5, 12 through 21, is almost, you're almost like they would have to read Paul and say, you know what, bless that Paul, bless his heart. <laughs> but we have so much more scientific knowledge now than Paul did. It was his understanding, and we appreciate that about him. But let me tell you what really happened, you see? There's a number of problems with it. First, you know, in Genesis 1, beginning in verse 11, as God is creating all living life forms on earth, Moses uses this phrase, according to its kind. Have you ever caught that? He made this according to its kind. The word kind is just species. He uses it in those verses in relation with every living thing. You can check it later. I won't take the time now. But every living thing, he uses the phrase that when God created, it was this direct, immediate act of creation in which he created all the species according to its kind. Not as though they all descended from one, but according to its kind. He uses that phrase ten times. And when, when Moses wrote Genesis 1, he knew the people of God would not have a copy like you do in the scriptures. And so one way in which they wrote is they would reiterate something over and over so that you could memorize it and have it clearly in your mind. And one thing as you got done hearing Rome, Genesis 1 over and over again, you would know that when God created, he created all living things according to its kind. So that would completely eliminate common descent, you see. It absolutely takes it off the table if you want to stay faithful with the revealed text. Secondly, problem, the Bible explains in Genesis chapter 2, while well, Genesis 1 verses 26 and 27 and Genesis chapter 2, the Bible explains that the creation of human beings was purposely unique from the creation of all other living things. It was so important, this creation of human beings was so important that God not only mentions it in chapter 1, but he zeroes in on it in great detail in chapter 2. And in verse 7, you're familiar with this, you don't have to turn into it. It says that the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. Adam was formed from the ground, Adama. So, from the dust of the ground, Adam was formed. Again, emphasis. A special act of direct creation. Separate and distinct from the rest of creation. Which biblically then understood would mean that he couldn't have descended. Not even in his evolved form from one common descent or other beings who were created according to their kinds. He was now specially and uniquely made in the image of God here... Formed from the dust of the ground. So there we have another problem. Jesus himself would say in connection with just this, if you were to ask Jesus about this, look at Matthew nineteen four and five. Put it, I'll put it up on the screen. You don't have to turn there. But when he was asked about marriage, remember what he said? He said, have you not read that he who created them, listen to this, from the beginning... He created them from the beginning, male and female. Now in Jesus' mind, and in Paul's mind, and in Moses' mind, when was the beginning? The beginning was not billions of years into a process. The beginning's the beginning. And every Jew knew there was nothing, and there was no one in the beginning but God and so, in the beginning, now you have you not read? He says, "Have you not read Genesis one? In the beginning, God made them human beings, male and female, Adam and Eve." It was very clearly understood from the Scripture what he meant. But the third and biggest problem, friends, is in chapter five, verse twelve. The biggest problem with their understanding of this common descent and not taking Genesis 1 through 3 in a literal fashion is this very fact that what they would have to have in billions of years before Adam and Eve is death in the world. And very clearly, chapter 5, verse 12, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin. So you cannot have death before the fall of man, because throughout the entire scriptures, we're presented as the result of sin is death. The result of sin is death, you see. Now, well, friends, you're faced with a choice. We're all going to be faced with choices in our lives regarding our faith in the scriptures, what we're going to believe. How we're going to live, all of those things. And right now, especially for young people coming up it's still the case, you go into schools, you go out in the world you're going to be presented with the choice to embrace biological evolution. And they're going to say, "We've got so much evidence on this. You've got to be just blind or foolish to not believe all of this evidence to believe that myth of creation. And in that moment, you do, you have a choice. What are you gonna do? What are we gonna do as Christian? Are we gonna somehow do what Biologos has done and somehow try to mesh two worldviews that just can't mesh? You can't make it happen. You gotta look at one and say, this is right, the other's wrong, or you gotta look at the other and say, this is right or this is wrong. As Christians, I would argue that the safest bet is to interpret Scripture in light of Scripture, put stock in faith in what God has said, and just assume that the world's interpretation of what they see as they interpret the data, that they're drawing the wrong conclusion? I mean, is it not even theoretically possible that science got it wrong? I mean, can we not even entertain it? That when they're interpreting the data, they're seeing it wrongly. Friends, I think it's absolutely preposterous to think that they couldn't have it wrong. I mean, we saw how the experts handled COVID-19. That was enough right there to make us say, okay, come on now. At least to question things. Jesus said, John 17, 16, they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Young people, kids coming up. Listen, it is better to believe what God has said even if the world laughs at you. Listen, Paul had the same problem. The world laughed at him about Christ, the resurrected Christ. What do he say when he goes around preaching the gospel and that Jesus was raised from the dead? What, how, did the, how did the Greeks respond to that? The sophisticated Greeks, how did they respond? They said, that's foolishness. Paul says it's the wisdom of God, and it makes the wisdom of man foolishness. You see, this is the wisdom of God. We look to it. We rest our faith in what God has said. It's always better, and in homeschool movements, I'm glad this is happening, and other educational structures that they begin with Scripture and what God has said was happened, has happened. And they work their way out from that. And it is amazing to see different interpretations then coming out about what they see in creation. I don't know if you've ever had the opportunity of watching, uh, is Genesis history? If you haven't, watch it. It's really good. And I actually looked up, because I'm always skeptical of, of uh, some ministries and presentation of these things or whatever. But I, I looked up actually the men they were interviewing here. These scientists were getting degrees from not Christian universities. These were PhDs from reputable secular universities. And they're saying the data is being interpreted wrong. And anytime this is brought up in those environments of academia. By any brave soul that wants to even just acknowledge a creator or the possibility of one. They're shut down. They're cast out. Like it can't even, it can't even be possible. Well, how can that even be possible? That should make us suspicious right there. Friend, the whole gospel presents, and I'll land the plane with this, the whole gospel now is presented, and what Paul is showing here is that sin came from Adam. And as a result of that sin, death spread to all men, which answers why we see all the suffering we do in the world and all the death we do in the world. And that the answer or the solution to that, of course, then is Jesus Christ. That's why he had to come into the world to conquer sin and the result of sin, which is death. We look away. Look forward to the time in Revelation chapter 21 verse 4. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Death came into the world from one man, that is Adam. And now through Jesus Christ, we are going to have the new creation. He's going to wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. And there is a sense in which we come to this service next week for Rich's service with humility and we say this should not be this is not God's original life brimming design for his creation and humanity this is a result of sin but thanks be to God Jesus Christ has taken care of this so there is coming a time when death will be no more when, Paul says, 1 Corinthians 15, the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, literally dying, and then we put on undying. Then shall come to pass that, uh, the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O oh, death, where is your sting? O oh, victory, Woe oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin. That's why we have it the power of sin is the law but thanks be to God who gives us a victory through our Lord Jesus Christ in other words friends actually reading Genesis 3 as a historical factual literal understanding of the account of Adam and Eve and Adam's fall into sin and through one disobedient act sin and death spread to all men is an essential and listen fundamental aspect of the gospel this isn't something we can just gently disagree on if they are proposing biological evolution they are denying what we're clearly seeing here in the gospel of Jesus Christ we need to make a determined decision about the Bible everybody knows of course who Thomas Jefferson is he wrote in that declaration of independence these words he said we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights. But it is interesting, if you ever do any research on him, you'll find he put together his own Gospels accounts. You ever heard of the Jefferson Bible? You can actually order one now. So what Thomas Jefferson did is he took all four of the Gospels, he took them in English and Latin, and then the Greek, New Testament, and in French, and he cut and pasted Started chronologically, wanted them chronological, beginning with Jesus' life and death, nothing about the resurrection. He cut out every miraculous, supernatural event of Jesus' life, and then he pasted all that together for you, and he read that. That was, part of, that was like his reading. He, he gleaned from that, he thought. This, he, he put this together, and he called it the life and morals of Jesus Christ, you see, friends, I bring that out because we have to determine that we are not, and he was, he was a product of the enlightenment now. He was a product of the enlightenment. We're enlightened now, you see. So certainly, Jesus didn't I, heal a blind man. Are you kidding me? Jesus didn't come back from the dead, but we can glean so much from him. See, we're so much more enlightened now. Friends, we as Christians must be committed to reject the light from the world where it contradicts the clear light and teaching of scripture. We need to be we need to maintain what are what are we called? We're the people of the book. We're a people of the book. We get back that old saying, you know? God said it, I believe it, and that just settles it, frankly. Well, next week, we'll get to my second point out of five for this one, so let's pray. Father, we're so thankful for your word. We're so thankful for Jesus. The hero of the scriptures, our hero, our savior, our Lord and our king. We pray that you would enable us to live for him in a world of darkness now, shining his light this week.